Hey everybody, we have a new Facebook page which we will update when new episodes are available. Just search for and like Movies Charles Hasn't Seen on Facebook. If you really enjoy the podcast and want to help us out, please rate and review it on iTunes. There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. I should sell it, yeah. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. Are you getting divorced? It doesn't look good. Was that our fault? Obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Thank you, Pagoda. Well, I'm on my way. Welcome to Movies Charles Hasn't Seen, episode 13. My name is Crossman. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. And as friends, we discovered Charles enjoys movies, but other than major blockbusters from the last 15 years, he hasn't seen any. So as good friends, we decided to expose him to personal favorites and cinematic classics. And this week, we watched the 2001 movie, The Royal Tenenbaums. So Charles, tell us about The Royal Tenenbaums. All right, so The Royal Tenenbaums is about the Tenenbaum family. They're very, or fairly wealthy and accomplished uh, New York family. They've grown distant over the years, but the father, Royal Tenenbaum, discovers that his wife, who they've, they're basically divorced, but they haven't legally divorced, is getting ready to marry someone else. And so suddenly he cares about getting his family together and fakes a terminal illness to try to you know, get everyone back together and, you know, renew sympathy for himself. Eventually he's discovered the his wife's suitor finds out that he's faking his illness and there's obviously a huge backlash. But in in his efforts he ends up actually, you know, getting closer with his family and uh, you know, shaking out a bunch of the issues that they had that's caused them to grow distant over the past many years. Um, and there's lots of resolutions to these family problems that they've had. Yeah, I guess that's the movie. That is, I mean, yeah, it's a nice, yeah. it, it, when you lay out the narrative of it, it's this nice little family dramedy, right? Like, it, yeah. it plays out like a very conventional narrative um, in a lot of ways. Uh, I picked this movie. You beat me to a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, I did. Um, why, are you going to pick another one <laughs> for next week? I know. Okay. But I, I'm a big fan of Wes Anderson. Yeah, yes, you ought to be. He's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so tell us, tell us why you chose why the, I, the Royal Tenenbaums. There's a few reasons. Um, for one thing, there's reasons I chose to do a Wes Anderson movie and why I chose to do this Wes Anderson movie. Um, I chose to do a Wes Anderson movie because he has come up both online and offline many times. As we started doing the show on this podcast, on this yes, on our on our show, he's come up many times. So I felt like it only appropriate that we actually expose Charles to this guy that we keep talking about. Um, also, I feel like Wes Anderson isn't mentioned as one of the most influential filmmakers of the 21st century, but he is right. Like you look at all of these indie films, like the Juno and uh, the Sunshine one, Little Miss Sunshine. 500 Days of Summer. 500 Days of Summer. Like, you see his fingers. Basically, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's movies. <laughs> career. Yes, post-brick. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's, it's everywhere, right? Like, you, you see his influence everywhere, but he's not discussed as this influential filmmaker alongside someone like Tarantino or 
uh, Paul Thomas Anderson or someone like that. And it, in some sense, in terms of influence, maybe he ought to be. Um, I, so I think that he is important and despite how popular he is, somehow underappreciated um, as a filmmaker. As for why I chose Royal Tenenbaums, um, this is not my favorite. I, th I think this is a very good movie. I think it's one of his best, but it's not my favorite Wes Anderson movie. My favorite Wes Anderson movie is Grand Budapest Hotel. But I chose this one because I feel like this is the movie that is most of his essence. I, I think that he is further, he, this is his third film. I think he's far enough along in his career at this point that he is really defined his aesthetic and his yeah, style. This which is the is, prototypical lesson. Right, exactly. Yeah. The quintessential prototypical example of what he's doing. And I think if you look at his earlier films at Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, you see that style developing. And if you look at his later films like Moonlight's Kingdom, Darjeeling Limited, and um, Life Aquatic, you see variations on the themes that appear, the mm -hmm. themes and styles that appear in Royal Tenenbaums. And then with Grand Budapest Hotel, you see a man commenting on his career, kind of at the halfway point, and giving this explanation of what he's been doing so far yeah. but this movie is really the essence and the best example of what it is to be a Wes Anderson movie and what he's trying to do in his films so that's what that's why I picked this one despite it being second or third on my list of um, All right. of Wes Anderson movies but uh, Charles but, uh, let's get this out of the way early because I've been swinging and missing so often with you <laughs> what, how did you feel about this one was it at least enjoyable to watch it it was definitely enjoyable. Yeah. Okay. I definitely would say that I liked it. <laughs> there we go. That's yeah, kind of a hit. Yeah. Um, I very much like Wes Anderson's style. Uh, I've always seen it in the various scenes <clears throat> and pictures I've seen. You know, I mentioned this before. Um, like, I love his use of color. It's something that's mm -hmm. very vibrant, and it really makes him stand out from uh, other directors that I've seen. And I'm always a huge fan of color and use of color and schemes and all that. And, yeah, you have um, a good eye for it. He always finds nice balances of color in every mm -hmm. scene. Um, maybe not the exact color schemes that I would use because they're a little like bright and pastel for my taste, but like I like that they're there. Yeah. Uh, something about how all the scenes are framed, like you mentioned him when you were talking about Kubrick, right? Mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of that in how like perfect and clinical they're laid out in a way, except that they don't have that kind of like surgical... Um, plainness about them that Kubrick's very busy. had. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I it kind of reminded me of uh, Hitchcock's um, like scene setting in Vertigo. Okay. Uh, where all the scenes were extremely full and very bright with color. Well, especially in the apartment, right? Like that. Right. That's probably like a they had, you know, the yeah. artist's apartment with the bright yellow walls. Mm -hmm. They had the restaurant with the bright red walls. Yeah. So it kind of reminded me of that where the color is almost oppressive at times where it's just so there's so much of it mm -hmm. all over the place yeah it's dominating um, and it even goes down to me liking the typography a lot it's not something i comment on very often but i really like the font that wes anderson uses um throughout the whole movie like it shows up everywhere in the movie um i rarely like pick out that i really like a font but here i could definitely do that and i actually looked it up and it turns out it's the same font as the one they used in the Space Odyssey poster, except it's an old version. <laughs> there you go. So I guess I just really like Futura. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin researching that. So well, <laughs> you, just look up, you, know, you just Google Wes Anderson World font. Tenenbaums font. There yeah. you go. That, that does it. Um, so yeah, big fan of the style. Uh, it has the cleanliness of Kubrick, but with a lot more life to it. Yeah. Well, it's a more it, it's a more human filmmaker than Kubrick is, right? Like yeah. Kubrick wasn't that concerned with 
people as individuals yeah. a lot of the time, whereas that is all Wes Anderson is concerned with, right? Like, yeah. he's, he's a, a very human, intimate filmmaker, um, but he gets at humanity in this really un, unconventional, or unexpected way, I guess is what you'd say, because he, he layers it behind all this formality and all of this precision and this, the, this, these degrees of separation from the person behind that, because this movie starts with, like, reading their resumes. Right, like yeah. that's that's what's going on at the beginning of this movie. So he he separates these people with their accomplishments and their items and these accoutrements that they surround themselves with, and uses that as a way into their humanity to get closer to them by at first distancing ourselves, which which I find uh, compelling and interesting. And I think that it's interest. I, I think that it's useful that he can create this artifice that allows us to get closer. Right, that it's kind of counterintuitive that way. That but, makes uh, sense when you say it that way, because yeah. I, I note now that you say that, that at first you differentiate them by what you know that they've done. Like one yeah. guy with the, the, the tennis star, the there's the playwright, the there's yeah. the, yeah. Um, but I feel like those aspects of their character kind of fade away as sure. the movie goes along and you notice them for their conflicts mm -hmm. and their concerns and like, you yeah. know, their problems, exactly. their personalities, rather than just what their accomplishments were. Right, which is, for me, a lot of what this movie is trying to say is that you're not necessarily your credentials. Right? That is part of the theme, right? Like, yeah. there's a, I forget the guy's name, Danny Glover, and he, he says, like, oh, I know I'm not Sherman. as accomplished as your right. previous suitors or whatever, yeah. and he has that kind of insecurity. And the, the, the shots of her previous suitors yeah. are so great. They just look so ridiculously <laughs> over the top. They look like the Dos Equis guy <laughs> over and over again. But, you had something to say, Crossman. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to talk about um, how each character essentially like has their own specific neuroses. Mm -hmm. um, so for Margot's like an agor, she has like agoraphobia. And Luke Wilson's depression. character is depressed. He's heartbroken. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's depressed too. Margot is clearly. Well, they're all yeah. depressed. Yeah. But they're, yeah, they're <laughs> all depressed for different reasons. Yeah. And like very different types of depression is is each character. Yeah. Um, Owen Wilson's character is a drug addict, which seems to stem from the fact that like he's like overcompensating for. Right. He, he, why would they say I'm not a genius? Professional yeah. success. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I love that you hear the other end of that because he's talking to Margot when he says that. Yeah. And he says, "Well, because you're not." <laughs> <laughs> I think that's been and great. I think she says, "Like, well, you." You need, it's something along the lines of like, well, I, I hold a very high bar for a genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't meet it. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I think he um, says something like, "Why are you thinking about this?" Or like, "Why is it taking you time to think about it?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, his character is like, is great, and it's kind of like, um, like a fake like El Doctoro essentially. It's yeah, like a dumb El Doctoro. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do Do you know El Doctoro? Okay, he's a he's a writer. He writes historical fiction that's like incredibly well researched sort of along the lines of like the assassination of Jesse James okay. yeah um, his books are huge right doesn't like huge. the giant like 900 page novels yeah, yeah and it's like I think his most famous book is like called Ragtime which is about the sort of roaring 20s and there's like a lot of like characters and stories about yeah him. I've never attempted one of his books, but I either I've met, I've actually met him. He's, did you tell him that I've never read anything? He's no, written? <laughs> but he's he's great to talk to. I think That's he's good. Still alive. He's one of those people who's like super old, but you don't know. Uh, As, like, like Gene Hackman, when I was watching this movie, I was like, "Is, is he, Gene is he still, still alive?" Yeah, he's still I wrong. think so. Yeah, is he? I'm not sure either. I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> if you told me either way, I would not. That we wouldn't question surprised. it. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Like Wilfred Brimley the other day on the thing. Yeah. Was like he's dead. That, that he was dead. Right? That was no, wait, no, he's not dead. That's right. Yeah, we found out. Oh, yeah, he's not dead. That yeah. was very surprising. Yeah, I'm um, still not sure. <laughs> and then Ben Stiller, I, I don't know what to call it, but he is. There, he definitely has like a phobia that is he's afraid of everything. Well, he's afraid of his kids dying because his he's, wife died. He's afraid, of, he's afraid of like disaster. Yeah, because yeah. he suffered he's a real. classic Ben Stiller character. Yeah, he suffered a disaster. He played the yeah. same character in Along Came Polly. I did not yes. see Along Came Polly. Yes, he did. Okay, well, he's like a risk assessor in that one. So oh, he's freaking okay, out about got it, got it. Kind of. Well, I mean, but here he has like an actual disaster that affect him. Yeah. personally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then finally, Royal is a narcissist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Extreme <laughs> and, a, and a racist, but that like goes hand in hand with narcissism. Yes, so. it does. Yeah. Yes, yes, does. Like like many older white men, he's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. So like these these problems like seem to define these characters much more so than their resume. Yeah. Which okay. Is what you're speaking to before. Yeah. It, right. Yeah. What they're actually about, but the way they're introduced is their resume. Yes. The right. Way that, yeah. The way they're introduced yeah. is their resume, but what comes to define these characters exactly. is the problems in their life. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I, which I think is really what he's what what Sanderson is talking about here. Right. Like yeah. you're not your greatest accomplishment. You are. You know who you are as a person. Yeah. Right. You are who, who your your relationships. You are how you interact with people. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you. You know almost one Wimbledon or whatever. And I guess we're leaving out Angelica Houston. I, I don't think she has like a specific neurosis, neurosis other than she, she she's obviously like commitment phobic. But, yeah, yeah. but she has good reason because she has like right. terrible <clears throat> Right, right. Well, and she did, you know, she raised the kids. She held that family together, right? Like her, her biggest problem yeah. is that she's married to Royal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She's kind of like the core of the movie. Right. Or, or, like the connecting to the, the, the matriarch, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is interesting because, like, her character in the Life Aquatic, it's hard to talk about Wes Anderson movies as like singular movies. Yeah, but she mm-hmm. plays a similar character in the Life Aquatic, uh-huh. but is maybe like a bit more flawed in that movie. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's been a little while since I've seen that one, so I'm not going to remember it as crisply. But yeah. um, yeah, but it's still like her kind of reprising this role. Well, which... in the Life Aquatic, it's like. She's the same character, but she is okay with like getting back with Royal. Okay. Like <laughs> yeah, Bill Murray is like playing the Royal character <clears throat> right. in that movie. Right. And he's terrible and like a narcissist. And <laughs> and Angelica Houston is like she's okay with like getting back with him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For or not. redeemable. Right. Well, and 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 you see yeah. these guys re- reprise some of these roles in Darjeeling Limited too, where they're like brothers that have family problems, and so I think you you see that. Wes Anderson would make that move a lot, where he'll like take a guy and be like, "Now you are in this movie too," and just give him a new name. Most notably with Bill Murray. Yeah, yeah. Where like in No Hotel Budapest, where he is just like given a cameo because he's because he's Bill Murray, Murray. Yeah. or, or, or <laughs> yeah. like Bill Murray is, or Gene, Gene Hackman is playing the Bill Murray role from Rushmore, right? Like the wealthy yes. older guy who can't hold a relationship together and is kind of an asshole, right? Like that's exactly. Who he is. Yeah, I mean, this character is in most of his movies. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I mean, it's in those three, right? <clears throat> mm-hmm. one, uh, one might think that Wes Anderson has daddy issues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to psychoanalyze here, but maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Although he seems to have gotten over it in the, the Hotel Budapest. Yeah, so. Grand Budapest Hotel. Grand whatever it's it a is. Brilliant, yeah. Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But it, yeah, it does seem like. Yeah, the life yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think that that movie is his most important and his most clear statement about what he's been doing so far in his career. 
um, and mostly about uh, why all this formality matters and why being polite matters, which I think you see in this movie too, um, where we're talking about the role that that style of filmmaking and that approach to life um, has and why it's important and why it can be detrimental. Uh, yes. But it's more crisply told in uh, in Grand Budapest Hotel, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is like most refined movie. Right, well, I mean, it's most recent. Like, he's had more yeah. time to but be a better filmmaker. I think maker. getting back to <coughs> Tenenbaums, like, yes. this really, like, lays the groundwork for, like, the next three or four films that he, he yep. makes. East, yeah, up until, like, Fantastic Mr. Where he's, Fox. like, I figure, he's, like, fig he's figured out the form yeah. in Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. And, in his earlier movies, like in Bottle Rocket, you can see that like there's a sparseness to it. The characters are there, right? And the flawed characters are there, but maybe he just like doesn't have the budget and like That's doesn't part of have it. the full. He doesn't realize the full vision that he gets to in in this movie. Yeah, and even um, he gets closer in Rushmore, but it's still not the same like he does more of the cutaway stuff where he's like he's like creating these scenes that are just there for like two seconds yes like he'll do that in Rushmore which he didn't really do in Bottle Rocket but it's yeah. it happens I don't know more purposefully yeah I think his control uh, as an author is like much more defined in this yeah movie. I agree um, I, which is why I to, he shifts from like like uh, sort of like lowercase a art movies to like uppercase yeah. a art yeah. movies <laughs> where he uh, um <laughs> like there, there is a refinement to how the sets are designed in this movie. And no there's kidding. An ornateness to them yeah. that is not in the movies that precede this, and is very much there in, in the movies after. Yeah. Well, and you um, can you can see him striving for it too, especially in Rushmore, like where it takes place at this fancy private school. Like it would be so appropriate to really kind of go overboard yeah. with that ornate preciseness yes. that you see here. And and he figures it out in this movie. Yeah, actually. part yeah. of it is like in this movie. This movie feels like very timeless. Where, yeah, um, you know, it, it could be set in the seventies or eighties, but yeah. it's also clearly like in a contemporary world. Like, yeah. well, it, the gravestones all say two thousand, two thousand one on them. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So he like makes a point of saying, yes, this is happening now, in case it's unclear, because it was. Yeah, yeah, but it's also like Wes Anderson's kind of known for this, where like and, and made fun of for it where mm -hmm. he's like sort of older technology yeah. is <laughs> everywhere is enough for Wes Anderson yeah yeah and he has like this obsession with like 70s and 80s era technology or probably even 60s because the design is very it's 60s long, yeah as long as it it's looks very weird. modern yeah well and, and yeah. That, that got adopted by hipster culture right so I think that <laughs> right. he and he like has retroactively caught flack for that where it's like look at the stupid hipster Wes Anderson but he actually did it first, right? Like he was the one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. before it was cool. He did it before it was cool. He no, really he, he totally did. Like, <laughs> yeah, again, this movie comes out in early 2002. Yeah, um, it's dated 2001. <clears throat> mm -hmm. We suspect because they released it for award season. Yes, in a limited fashion. Um, but I think part of the reason that Wes Anderson has stayed relevant, other other than the fact that like his control of his art is mm -hmm. amazing um, and clinical. Um, is he comes to prominence during the Bush years. That's true. And I think the, at, at a very dark moment, right? Like yes. his most famous film that comes out is The Royal Tenenbaums and mm -hmm. really defines him as as a sort of force to be reckoned with as a, as a filmmaker, um, as an independent filmmaker. Um, yes. And continues to make a string of like pretty 
great movies through the Bush years and mm -hmm. even into Obama's presidency. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's such like a dark moment for the country that people look back on these as kind of like a blanket right well for mm. that moment because yeah these these are very much like feel-good movies they're comedies they're comedies yeah, yeah totally yeah but but they also like acknowledge tragedy so like yeah all of his movies like have a very tragic moment in this one it's when royal dies at the mm -hmm. end of the film and it's kind of preceded by the death of of the dog yeah um and that like tragic moment is very like and Anderson E. Yeah. Uh, well, because it's. If we're it, going to put like an ism to it, yeah. it's like Andersonism is the. That like that tragic moment is really important to all of his films. But it, it's. Yeah. yeah. But he doesn't play it as straight tragedy, right? Because it's tragic and cathartic, right? Like, as you see before yeah. that, him like figuring out how to be a decent person and like understanding what his problems are and really like having this arc. Well, and so it's sad when he dies because he dies and you like him now. Yeah. But it's also not. He's been redeemed as a character. Right, right. He's yeah. he's reached that moment. So it's this, it, it, it kind of feels bittersweet. It's not just sadness, right? It's this kind of, uh, well, I'll miss him, but I'm glad he got well, he to where he needed to be. He got to reconcile yeah. with Chaz. Yeah, well, it's well, whole family. It's a great moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chaz specifically because, like, the other members of the family had sort of made up with him earlier, mm -hmm. but Chaz was not letting him Had the biggest problem with it. Yeah. yeah, well, and he had that moment in the ambulance, right, that was yeah. actually really affecting. Yeah. Yeah, like that. Yeah. That was great. And the Margot moment where he <laughs> he's, like, the only person that enjoys her play after right. she's, like, done a new play after the events of most of the film. Right, because he uh, was shitting on her play earlier yeah. when yeah. she was a child. Speaking and it's of, the one thing that's affected her most. Right, right, right clearly. <laughs> yeah, disapproval. Yeah. Um, and speaking of which, the whoever plays young Margot is freaking great yeah. like that kid is uh, he's an adult now but yeah it, it was just killed it like she steals uh -huh. the screen every time she's on there yeah yeah but so i, I think like going back to like, i really think that this wes anderson is very important to the bush years of like american culture yeah like i, I don't think he would be as important if he had come to t come to terms or come of age kind of in his filmmaking during the Obama presidency. I think that's a good like, read. Yeah, that I, makes sense to me. I think and it's such a dark moment culturally for <clears throat> the country, and, mm -hmm. and it's really, like, why we look so fondly on his movies. Yeah. Well, and it's... Just, they're all about, like, harkening back to yeah, the nostalgic. a better time, like yeah. a nostalgic time. Right, but it's, yeah. an, it's a nostalgic time that he yeah. kind of acknowledges doesn't... never existed. Well, right? yeah, there's fantasy elements in Right, and in, in in so, even in this one, right? Like, yeah. so it's... It, so it's both nostalgic but also aspirational. Yes. At the same time, and that is an interest or a tricky move to pull off. And yeah. important to that is the soundtrack, right? Yeah. Because the the soundtrack is a pop music soundtrack. Right. Um, all like very recognizable songs or songs that become recognizable <laughs> right. because of people yeah. listen, watch this movie, and then yeah. like it, similar to like a Garden State. Right. Um, I definitely like the soundtrack in this. Yeah, it's so great. Good. We both it was so good. and I were talking about Hey Jude <laughs> yeah. before I think you got here today. Um, yeah. And like I was listening to it this morning. I listened to it yesterday morning because yeah. after I watched this movie, I was it's like in my head. Yeah, I was I was humming Hey Jude yeah. in anticipation of watching this movie. Like before I watched yeah. it, I was like remembering I that scene. I was surprised when it came on. I don't know why but I didn't expect it to be there. It's not yeah. the Beatles version of Hey Jude. Probably because it would cost a jillion dollars to get the rights to it. <laughs> Indeed, but I th I think it, it actually works as a cover. Oh, absolutely. Um, because yeah. I mean it's a great song, but also 
what what interests I think last week we spoke a lot about postmodernism. Yes, we did. And maybe too much. Maybe, maybe too much. But Wes Anderson is like an important like postmodern director. Oh yeah. Where all of his content is like looking to the past and just sort of like collaging elements of of things in the past into this like new like more meaningful moment. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's important that he's making something out of it, right? He's not just right. presenting it. Right. Which I think is. I don't think that's exactly what Brick was doing, but it's closer to what Brick was doing. But I think that he's really making something substantial like and meaningful and new out of the old. And that kind of separates him from a lot of postmodernists in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's also doing it in a way that's not like most postmodernism is like very cynical. Yes. And how Wes Anderson isn't is using it is not. He's like his movies are funny, but not because they're cynical. They're actually funny. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're not cynical at all. Like these are yeah. sincere movies. Like he's really he's going right for the heart with these. Yeah. Every single time. And I, I like that a lot about him. It's what keeps me coming back. I've seen World Ten of Bombs a lot of times. Yeah, that's when and, like the, these moments yeah. of tragedy like kind of ring true because <clears throat> they feel like actually tragic. Like yeah. they're actually sad. Like and it, it gets ramped up in the Life Aquatic. Where mm-hmm. What happens in that movie is is like devastating. Yeah. Um, well, I, and from, he hasn't done that in his other films as much. But oh, I think he nails it in Grand Budapest Hotel when he says they shot him. Of course, like that is a gut punch. Like that one works really well. Yes, but I, <laughs> I still don't think it's like as devastating as. Oh like well, what and we don't need to light, compare. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier that he. I guess we've kind of covered at this point that he, he's one of your favorite filmmakers. Yes. Yeah. I mean, have we touched on the reasons why, or did you want to expand on that point? No, I'm, I'm happy to do. I think his use of color is very important. Um, in my own work, like color is very important. Mm-hmm. And I think Charles spoke to earlier, like the mm-hmm. colors in this film are, you know, selected in very purposeful ways. And his yep. control of the color palette of, of the film is very masterful in, mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, so, like, there's a warmth to this movie. That's yeah. true. Except when you get to the moment where uh, Luke Wilson's character goes to commit suicide. Yeah. And the color palette in the movie changes really completely blue. at the moment. It's yes. really cold and so, blue. Yeah, yeah, he shifts to... That was very jarring. He yeah. shifts to a blue color palette. That's important not just to make you feel depressed, mm-hmm. but what happens... Which it did. Yeah, which <laughs> it did. Yeah. Uh, well, again, and uh, they're playing... Um, uh, Needle in the Hay by Elliot, Elliot Smith. Yeah. yeah, which yeah. is like, I was listening to that all day. <laughs> yeah. too. I was uh, like, oh, it's such a good song. Uh, yeah, I heard that. I was like, man, I haven't listened to Elliot Smith in forever. And yeah, that, yeah. that scene, it's, I mean, it's iconic. Like that scene specifically. Yeah, so, yeah. but the blue is important, um, not just the filter. So what happens is he slits his wrist and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you just see this like insane amount of red yeah. on screen. And it's yeah. very red. And yeah. so what he's done, um, if you go back five to ten minutes in the film Mm -hmm. red things like disappear out of the film oh wow and you get this blue shift Uh in the film and uh then you get to the moment of of the suicide and you see all this blood on screen and it's the most intense red that you can get yeah because he's drained red out of your color palette leading up to them that i had not noticed that at all that's really cool yeah Yeah. i would not have noticed it had i not um seen that saw the same thing in lost Okay. <laughs> um, so the same thing happens in the first episode of Lost. One of the greatest and, pilots ever. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 
Yes. Yeah. Pro- probably the best, actually. Maybe, yeah. Um, and I only know, know because I listened to the director's commentary on that episode of Lost. And okay. they, they did the same thing. Okay. So wow. what happens is uh, the plane, there's, you just wake up in this plane mm-hmm. crowd. On the beach. Yeah. The main character wakes up on the beach and then finds his way out of the weeds and then sees this complete mayhem of mm-hmm. the, the plane crash at the very beginning of Lost. They did the same thing where you don't see any red up until the moment where the main character, who's a doctor, sees an injured person and they have a, a bloody lay of shrapnel oh, okay. in, in their, I remember in their this gut. Yeah. yeah. And you see all this blood, and that's yeah. the first time that you see the color red okay. in, in Lost. In the show, period. And, yeah. And yeah. so they were very careful to not have any red up that's, until that moment. That's really yeah. cool. Wow. And that is, I must have been inspired by. By, by this movie, possibly. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't know about, enough about color, color theory. They both like come yeah. out around the same time. That's true. Um, That's true. And I, I don't like you can. Yeah, I, I actually don't know if they play off each other, but uh, they are doing the same. Exactly. They're using the same technique. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. I've yeah. noticed that before. And it, it's again just another more evidence of what a thoughtful filmmaker he is. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like how much he's considering each point. Yeah. So yeah. not just color. Um, he also has. Uh, he uses symmetry a lot in a very oh, clearly Kubrickian yeah. yes. manner, um, where every <clears throat> scene is composed in a way that like the the two halves of the screen balance each other very well. Right, and he'll he'll set things off center slightly, but right. if you still were, were to divide most of the scenes in which, half, it would be they would match which, each other, which it would just so directly counter to conventional cinematic theory. Right, because well, you use the rule of thirds and right, kind of like right. set things. And off. he's just saying, "No, I'm not doing that." Like he's he's like going against that. Well, it's so pleasing like, to it, yeah, and it works scenes. really like, well. So lush, but and, it's yeah, and it's yeah. it's cool to see a filmmaker look at these rules, which are presented as rules when you learn about movies, yeah. uh, and to say, "No, never mind. I'm not I'm not going to do that. Like I'm I'm going to do something else and have it work. Yeah, and have it like function in his film, not just as this cool thing to look at, but as you know, an effective way of communicating what he's trying to communicate. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it really shows that like he's become a master of his craft like right. well, at this moment. Yeah, when you yeah, when you're able to break the rules with purpose. Yeah. I think is when you really know that you can that, that you've achieved something. You've reached another level. Yes. And and he does that and you see it like Tarantino do the same thing and and these other great 21st century directors. Yeah, I mean, he's also the type of director who like he writes the entire film by himself or with a writing Yep. writing partner they write it in these like you know very hipster ways where they'll like they'll go <laughs> to a typewriter they'll write it probably write it on a typewriter <laughs> right hand, and they'll do it like at a specific restaurant oh okay and they'll just like i forget which film it was but like there's one film he wrote it he just like went to the same restaurant every day and, and wrote hmm. the film so it works has, there's a quirkiness to yeah. wes anderson that right. i think he gets unfairly criticized for right um like he wears the same thing all the time and but he's also <laughs> he's like a dandy but he like wears the same like dandy getup all the time <laughs> yeah um and the, like the interviews i've seen with him he says like oh yeah like i really do like dressing up, but I'll wear the same suit, like just into the ground, like just yeah. where it's just into tatters, and then he'll just like replace it. It's just efficient, right? Yeah, his money's worth. And so I think he's like unfairly maligned as like I, a hipster. No, um, I agree because I think but, that he did a lot of this stuff first, and I think I, he doesn't. He's not doing it for effect, right? He's not just doing it to say, "Look at how weird I am." No, he's sincere. Right, he's yeah. doing it. Yeah, he's doing it earnestly, and that is really what's missing in 
so many hipster movies and media in general. Well, he's not like putting on a turtleneck in like a, a right. beret and like you know filming. <laughs> like he's, how crazy I am. Yeah, no, he's just like you know I probably bought this suit somewhere and now I'm gonna now wear because I love it because he likes it exactly. It's not about presenting that thing. Yeah. Or the same comes through with like his use of stop animation, which doesn't mm -hmm. happen in this movie, but um, Life Aquatic, the effects are all stop animation. Yeah, Fantastic Mr. Fox, is obviously. It's all stop animation. Yeah. I, I bet there's some of it in Moonrise Kingdom, right? Yep, and yeah. um, the Grand, and Grand Budapest. Budapest. Yeah, the, the hotel. Itself. Well, they also, just, they don't even animate some of the things. They're just like little models. <laughs> yeah, and there's uh, somebody pulling a string off screen, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or winding a crank. Yeah. Um, this is another movie, uh, I guess we've seen several at this point, with voiceover. Um, right. Yeah, and I think starring the great Alec Baldwin. Well, Alec Baldwin. It took me a little yeah. bit to piece together who it was. I knew yeah. it sounded familiar, but I that's why. Yeah, that, it it's Alec. Yeah. Um, what do we think about Charles? What do you think about the um, the voiceover and like how it compares to other voiceovers we've seen in other movies and whether it was effective here? Um, I mean, it tends to give it that sort of storybook feel. Right. I mean, that it's pervasive throughout the entire film because they have the chapters with the book and like you know the. The text on the screen actually describes what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, lots of imagery depicting the books that are being created. So it's clearly to create this uh, kind of story, almost fairy tale feel um, to what's going on. Um, and it seems to have been used to similar effect. Like I remember um, in Assassination of Jesse James, is to make it feel like a legend. Yeah, or like a, a book, right? Like, because yeah. this is presented as a story, a story in a story in a sense, right? Because they show us a book called The Royal Tenenbaums in the, yeah. the first shot, right? And then each section opens up with a little chapter, like you said. Yeah. So it suggests, I, I think, a heightened world, right? Like he's really emphasizing that he's telling us a story, that this isn't something that really takes place in the same place that we're living, that right. we're living kind of this sideways there reality. There about that that I noticed. <clears throat> I was trying to piece together um, like what the different uses of color might mean. And one thing I kind of noticed was that all of their building interiors and clothing has that very bright color scheme. Mm -hmm. um, but there are scenes where they're outside and you see all the buildings and they're all the typical drab New York City, like brownish gray. Yeah, yeah. and the cruising uh, around there's it. that one time where um, Margot is with um, Owen Wilson in the Roadster, right? The alley looks really dirty and messed yeah. up. Or like all the gypsy cats <laughs> all behind the gypsy there, cats. so dirty and run down. So that it makes say me get gypsy that. cap on the side Right, of and so <laughs> he might be trying to say that this family is really disconnected from reality in their own little world with their own little problems. I think that's part of it, yeah. Um, so, you know, the family's world is this like world of bright color and mm, yeah. um, it's right. like so different from, you know, the real world. Yeah, well, and lavish accomplishment and, yeah. It could be that. I also just think that like his films are like generally nostalgic, and yes. part of that is um, <laughs> like memory. Memory is like very important to mm -hmm. I think all of Wes Anderson's films. Um, Although curiously, the voiceover is in the present tense throughout. Yes, but it's set up like a play or book. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, like you're reading because I, I mean that's how screenplays are often or plays. Yeah, and the different written. sections of the film are are literally a book, right? Yeah, they, they yeah. show the text yep. on screen of Chapter like what's X. about to happen. Yeah. And you can actually read like the first couple lines, and it'll yeah, match up with what happens in yeah, the opening like, scene right after. Yeah. Um, so I think he's he's probably like doing one or 
one or the other or both of these things where either he's playing to like the fantasy elements mm -hmm. of this that like yes this, this it, he's like acknowledging the fictional elements of the film and because of that he's like able to like amp them up a bit yeah or it has more to do with memory and when when like we remember really important like moments in life they often are like amped up in sure. a lot of ways and so like the details are kind of like turned up whereas like everything else is kind of like turned down i think he gets to this more actually in the grand budapest mm -hmm. um, because the grand budapest is being told from like, there's like three layers there's, yeah. yeah yeah there's an inception to yeah grand budapest. <laughs> yeah um but the the outermost layer of that is yeah. someone who's looking back on yep. their life um yeah and in that in that way, the Grand Budapest has like very cartoonish elements to it, much more, more so, so than, than this movie. Thanks. And I think that one he's really speaking to like when we remember things, like mm -hmm. it's the extreme version that we're remembering. And maybe in reality, like they weren't like that, but this is how mm -hmm. we remember it. Yeah. Well, and um, it, so for instance, yeah. in that movie, um, the, there are the like animated, not so animated, like ski sequences. Yeah. Uh, which are very comical and, yeah. and well done. Um, but also just like even the characters themselves, like the love interest in that movie has like a birthmark. Mm -hmm. And he says shaped like, like Mexico. It's shaped like Mexico. But yeah. then you see her and it's like actually Mexico on yeah. her face. And yeah. so it's like you remember it like it was like this and then you see it as like it's exactly it's like literally, that. yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. So and that's how you would actually remember things. Right. right. Well and it, it's it's really setting off what's important for these characters, right? Because right. if your if your best memories or your most important memories are the ones that are heightened, this whole movie is or like the stuff that's heightened in this movie, which is most of it. Yeah. This is the important stuff. Like they're remembering the things that are most critical in for this them. one, the mice, yeah. right? The mice yeah. are spotted like Dalmatians, yeah. right? Yeah, which it's, is it's so quirky. I don't know. Yeah, it's there's no way to do that when you're 11 or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. right. But 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 that's like a fantasy element here, right? right? That like and they keep cropping up all over. But it's like almost yeah. believable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. So exactly. yeah, <laughs> so maybe yeah, maybe this kid like bred some white mice and you know put. I took a marker to them and gave them bats or something like that. Who knows? But, but, but then it's nice yeah. though to see them sort of like they're very passive mice, which is yeah. nice. You see them <laughs> kind of like sort throughout the film, right? In, in moments that are meant to be like kind of relief from what's happening, right? Yeah, yeah. comedy relief mice. Yeah, is that what's going on? Although this is still, I, I mentioned it before, a really funny movie. And, I, and you mentioned that he, you know, just writes the whole script yeah. in one spot and one thing. I think he doesn't get enough credit for his dialogue, right? Like everyone's talking about his, his scene construction and like this, you know, these things external to the characters. Yeah. But his writing, like for the it's words, is yeah, yeah, over and over and over again. I, I was I was laughing at this movie and I don't know, Charles, was this, were you, did you laugh at this movie? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Solid. I, I can't say I remember specific lines or things like that, but I definitely remember finding it a I mean, very, he's a very funny movie. He's great comedic actors, though. Oh like yeah, the Wilson brothers are yeah perfect. Very funny, yeah. And yeah. Ben Stiller, of course, is hilarious. And this is like the height of Ben Stiller's <laughs> power. Yeah, moment. <laughs> yeah, like I think Zoolander comes out around the same time. Yeah, it would have been a little Dodgeball, after this. Dodgeball's followed like pretty quickly. So. Right. Well, and he plays it so severe, like compared to everyone else. Yeah. Like, it's just like this perfect, you know, he harshness. Very, he very much stood out. He was yeah. the most animated of anyone in the whole movie. Yeah. Most of the people are very reserved or kind of like monotone. Or, or, He's the one or who's goofy. Like exploding yeah. with emotion all the time. Yeah. And it's always, and it's never like, 
you know, happiness or levity or anything. It's always this like really overbearing, yeah. you know, that it's like when they're like when we were introduced to him and he's brushing his kids out for the fire alarm and it's like, oh, yeah. we forgot Buckley. It doesn't matter. He's <laughs> dead now. Burned to a crisp. <laughs> it's just like it, it, it sets himself off so, so well. But I think that Gene Hackman gets a lot of the funniest lines in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's he, hilarious. I like when he's, um, he, he meets his grandkids for the first time. And he says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. She, she was a very attractive woman. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a weird thing to say well, He's to a total asshole. Right? Well, but he's and a racist. Right. He's a, he's a racist and he's an asshole. But it, it feels like in moments like that, he's like trying to connect with them. Like he's actually trying to compliment their mother at that point and actually that's trying to the comfort best them. He's got. And that's the best he's got is yeah, your dead so, mother is a really attractive woman. Yeah. No, he's so incapable of just like feeling someone else's right. emotion. Or he he may feel it but is not able to express it. No, and 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 I think that's kind of what's worked so well about uh, Wes Anderson's jokes is that they're not just funny lines. There there are funny lines that inform the character. Yeah. And so you see stuff like that, you see Ben Stiller talking about the dog getting burned to a crisp, and like these, <laughs> these are funny lines, but they make perfect sense for that person saying it. And I think it's yeah. easy for a lot of comedies to just like write pages and pages of jokes and distribute them evenly amongst their characters that you can't tell sure. the d- difference between. And this one, he's he's clearly written a joke for Royal. He's written a joke for Richie. He's written a joke for Margot. And it, so he's, it, it's again humor with purpose in the same way that his set design is done with purpose and. This framing is done with purpose. Um, so it, it, it suggests, again, a thoughtful filmmaker um, throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, I mean, all his films are very funny. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's comedy first. And it, it again goes back to your oh, earlier. Bill Murray, of course, is in the is, film, too. And, it, yeah. You know, like, leg- comedy legend. Bill right. Murray. Well, and showing his range. Like, you compare him in Rushmore to his character here, and it's like yeah. to- diametrically opposed to get dudes, yeah. right? Eddie's totally believable in each one. Um, but I think it goes back to your earlier point about this movie acting as a, a comfort blanket during the Bush years. Like totally. it has to be funny in order for that to happen. It has to like it, it can't be a hard watch. Right? Yeah, no, I, I think yeah, that's why you know these are looked back upon so fondly mm-hmm. because they are funny and feel good movies. Right. Well, and you can you can return to them. Over and over and over again, right? Like, yeah. it's easy to rewatch. There's a depth to the characters that is mm-hmm. believable and attractive. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. you know, I kind of didn't expect this. The story felt very conventional. It, it is right, uh, it's, and in a lot of ways, I guess I I had no idea what to expect. I just expected the Wes Anderson films to be really weird, so I had no idea that the plot would feel so. You know, I felt like I've seen that plot before many yeah. times. Yeah, absolutely, you yeah. have. Yeah, and I but I think it's a, a a good argument for the plot not mattering that much, right? Like yeah. like what what matters is story and characters more than anything. And the reason this movie is so resonant is because we know who these people are, yeah. And we see them in these situations that we understand well and that we may have experienced or have seen on screen before. Yeah. And despite having seen it many many times, it's still effective because we care about it happening to you know, Chaz, or we care about it happening to Eli or whoever, because he does the work. He does the work up front to show us who these people are and like what they need and what they want. Um, and yeah, that's so just... many movies struggle to establish one character, and he does like six. Nine, yeah, yeah, many of them. Um, 
and that's just good fundamental storytelling. That's just doing the basic stuff right. And for a uh, director who's known for his weirdness, <laughs> that he is embracing these conventions of storytelling, and that's what they are—just conventional ways of communicating. Yeah, and is, there's, he also has like a patience with each of the characters. Mm -hmm. Like he gives each one their own yep. intro. And then you show that you see them as children, you see them as adults. And yep. You see them with each other. You see how they each interact with each one of the other ones. Yep. Right. And it's just again basic, basic stuff done well, and that doesn't get old. Right. Like you, you yep. can see the same stories done, but if you see it done well, it'll still, it'll still catch you. Right. It'll still, yeah, true. still let you up. Yeah. All right. What's what's the Eber quote where we talk about uh, how a movie hits you? Uh, right in the heart, or goes right to the heart like an arrow, something like that. And I, I, I'm not I, familiar, but uh, <laughs> anyway, the, yeah. he has a famous line that is I'm par paraphrasing poorly, um, but I feel like this movie is like that, right? Like it doesn't matter all the stuff around it because it's just hitting you right in the heart. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I was wondering about this movie, and going back to the color discussion because mm -hmm, I love that sure. aspect of it so much, was if there was a particular significance to particular color choices that he made besides you know the aforementioned use of blue and red in that one scene because uh, I noticed a lot of scenes where the interior is like that bright pink or bright yellow mm -hmm. um, like I can kind of see why Ben Stiller's character always is wearing that red jumpsuit because it kind of accentuates his angry personality in a sure way. does um, but then I also noticed, you know, not every character has a specific color motif, but I noticed that uh, Sherman always was wearing a blue, like a really yep. thick blue suit, um, things like that. Um, I'm wondering if there's a particular meaning behind certain color choices, or like the green line behind Margot when she arrives to pick up uh, Luke Wilson. Oh, I love that moment when uh, mm -hmm. These Days starts playing. Mm -hmm. Like, that's such a good song. Um, and that's another one where he chose the unconventional. That's the Nico song. He does the well. It's the Jackson Brown song that Nico covered. Yeah, and so it's another known Nazi sympathizer, Nico. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> but the, I mean, the Jackson Brown one doesn't have that same uh, nostalgia to it, right? Like it, it the, the Nico one is the better choice. And yeah. it, it's curious that he goes back to this the uh, covers well uh, twice in a short span. Um, but to answer your question about colors, I'm sorry. What, what were no, you saying? Um, I think, well, the one that I notice a lot is that there's a lot of uh, these oranges, like these really warm oranges, which is, mm -hmm. I think, a color that's associated with memory and going backwards and nostalgia, right? Like, because it, it feels... I never uh, had that association. Well, it, it feels kind of sepia-colored, right? Okay. It, it, like, you're when, again, reiterating what Crescent was saying earlier, that you look back on your memories and you feel warm about them. You look back on your good memories, right? And, yeah. you, and they make you feel comforted. And you, you look at these oranges, and it feels like a campfire. Right? It feels like just mm -hmm. you know something that is safe. Right? Well, I wonder how much of the color choice is to convey a specific meaning, and how much of it is to balance out how a scene looks. It's like both. the green line on the bus balances out greatly with Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, very bright blonde hair and mm -hmm. her like bright brown fur coat that she's always wearing. Or like I noticed some scenes where like. Uh, on one side of the frame, you would have Sherman in his blue jacket, but he would have like a yellow undershirt. And then on the left side of the scene, you would have the wall be um, the bright yellow. And then like, you know, I think someone else in the scene would also be wearing blue or something like that. And so there'd be that kind of color balance mm -hmm. um, achieved um, by those choices. Yeah. I noticed a little bit of that. You're the color expert, Crosby. Yeah. I I would be adverse to ascribing like any kind of cultural meaning to it, mm -hmm. um, but I think 
I mean, I know those readings exist. I, I don't believe in that type of reading of color um, okay. unless the author is like really hitting you over the head with it. Um, so you think it's more of just Wes Anderson likes this color scheme and used them in these certain ways to kind of... I Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, whatever art director he's working with is, you know, very much a master of color. So when yeah. you're saying like, you know, different blues and yellows go together. You know, these are complementary colors. So, yeah. like, this is someone who knows the color yeah. wheel like yeah. really well and <laughs> knows how to use it correctly. Yeah. And like Wilson was saying, like the use of the warm yellow, orange, and pink, which is mm -hmm. repeated a lot in this film, is like those are warm colors. It's meant yep. to evoke, you know, like you're supposed to feel warm about what you're watching and yeah. there's also somewhat of a reference to kind of like 70s like sure. printed yeah. film which like gets tinted okay. yellow I mm -hmm. think this happens like some 60s film too um, and I'm sure it's also like he's clearly a big fan of Stanley Kubrick I haven't no, read no, that, but I, I bet a lot of money that yeah, he is. Yeah. You see that on screen. They sort right? of did that in City yeah. of God as well like paralleling back uh, sure. Because yeah. I mean, they like go back to the '60s there, and it's all tinted orange. Yep. Yes. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And then it becomes clearer. Rose, rose tinted. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, I mean, Kubrick is a master of film for this reason. Like, yep. he knows how to see how a set should be designed and what yep. color should go into that, and everything is very specifically chosen. And I think Wes Anderson is kind of like the leader of this ship. Is is making similar decisions that are informed by his his love of, of Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Okay. And his study of, of Stanley Kubrick. Because yeah. he of of all modern filmmakers, he has inherited the the Kubrick mantle the best, probably actually. Or uses the tropes that you see in a Kubrick in the design of Kubrick films the best. He, yeah, the design mm -hmm. of it. Because in, yeah. in terms of what these movies are doing is very As movies not, are, they could be more different, no, right? But, yeah, but how they are designed yeah. is textbook. Yes, Stanley that is, I think it's definitely yeah. true. Yeah, the content is maybe <laughs> better, <laughs> better inherited by David Lynch, but yeah, yeah, yeah probably yeah, because yeah, these are they couldn't be more different in terms of what they're interested in. Yeah, um, and it's unfortunate that more filmmakers like don't do what's happening in this film. Yeah, I agree that more people should be inspired hard. by Kubrick. But it's hard. Like, what Wes Anderson is doing is difficult. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, he's not, he doesn't work within a studio system, and there are pressures in the studio system right. that mm -hmm. are such that you cut corners. Some of those corners are, you don't put as much effort into set design. Function, as, function, function. Yeah. Right. It's just, yeah. yeah, get the information on the screen. Yeah, it's and you don't some need way. it for like if you're filming Transformers, you don't you you know you don't need to like worry about the symmetry of, of yeah. The I mean, you sh yeah. if but if you did, Transformers would be a better movie. Right? Oh, you, you right? Can make, That's the thing, right? Like, like, <laughs> you can make like the best movie <laughs> ever, yeah. and it could be a Transformers film. Yep. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, we, I don't think we want to mistake form and function here, right? Right. Because <laughs> and Stan yeah. Kubrick proves this. So many times over, right? Because he does The Shining, which is a horror movie. Yep. Good directors don't make horror movies. Yep. Stanley Kubrick makes the scariest movie, right? Well, or I, one of the scariest movies of over, all time. Over, I mean, he, right? look at the the breadth of his yeah. career because you have Spartacus, science fiction movie. Yeah, science fiction two thousand one. Yeah, yeah, you have all of the. He hits on so many genres. Yep. Right from the period piece to the sci fi. Yep. And 
he nails it every single time. And I think that it's such a strong argument for the idea that it is that just doing the basic storytelling stuff and functional technical filmmaking stuff right. It doesn't matter if you exactly. It doesn't matter if movies about giant robots killing each other. You can still have something that's powerful and affecting and and gets at the audience. You know? Yeah, and but these yeah, are often the things that are not like, un unfortunately, they're not, you know, the focus of filmmaking. Right, because you can American filmmaking. You can get you can still make money without doing it that way, right? Like it's yeah. it's so easy to make something that is, or not so easy, but substantially easier. Well, it's also hard to write well. I always yeah. say that's a challenge that's impeding a lot of these like popcorn action movies where they don't write the characters properly so it's very hard to care about them and their motivations. Um, they're always just chasing some sort of MacGuffin the whole movie yeah. and there's no personality to them, right? I mean, that's, that's why always Carrie Fisher is such a sought after script doctor, right? Yeah. Because you could come in and say like, this is stupid. Like, if you just make these small changes, it'll it'll be so much better. Well, and, and part of it's that's the problem with how writers are paid, right? So, you, like, writers are, are, to a certain extent, when they come in to change a script or fix a script, they're paid by how much they are influencing the script. So there's incentive to remove functional things that are necessary for the story to make sense yep. so that you have more of your content in the script. And when enough people come along and do that, you end up with a train wreck of a story that doesn't yeah, make any sense. perverse incentives to yeah. where the... You know, you know, the main actor or the main director, if they can change the script enough, they'll also get a writing mm -hmm. credit. Or, so. or a story credit or something. Yep. And I think you see the opposite happening on TV, right? You look at all of this really functional television that's like Breaking Bad, like Mad Men, The Americans, right? So the writers. Because they're a writing room and they're writing it together, right? Yep. They're, they're, mm -hmm. writing, they're not writing in a way where if you have the most content in here, you get the credit. Harmony to the right. Process. You are all, we are all writing it together and we are all concerned with just telling the story in a way that's clear and functional and affecting. And it, maybe it's time for film to take a page out of television's book there. Yeah, I didn't realize this was how the process went. Yeah, not all the time. Obviously, there are a lot of movies that don't work that way. Wes Anderson doesn't work that the, way. Yeah, but the yeah. train wrecks yeah. are really the ones that have like 23 authors. Right, and, yeah. right. And they're not working together. It's 23 authors in a row, not in a circle. Yeah, someone yeah. inherits a copy and they make yeah. a change and someone else inherits that they make a change and then... Exactly. And that's why you see, all, I mean, reshoots yeah. happen in every movie, but you see it happening a lot more recently. Yeah. And Suicide for the, Squad being yeah, the, Yes. The, Rogue One had a very strange development process. Yeah, and that movie was a train wreck. Like, yeah. <laughs> you I, can see it. Like, there's lots of scenes that are in the trailer that don't show up in the movie, and people yep. wondered about it, right? And yep. they admitted later that they were just shooting scenes to see what they could string together, and that's not... I think just today yeah, they, they released, really. like, one of the endings <laughs> that they shot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I heard rumors about that, but, like, if yeah. you're just shooting random random scenes to see what you can string together that seems like a really bad way to make a coherent film. Yep. yep. Yeah, because they, they didn't have a script ready when they started. Yeah. Although, when you're making a movie, they're not shot in order, so of course. It, like, when well, you're yeah. making it can feel random as well. You just need the vision to but say, I figured, like, these, you know, these Lego you, bricks fit together. I figured you would way. have the yeah. scene storyboarded yeah. beforehand and planned out so you know what the whole scene you're about to shoot or make is rather than literally shooting random scenes to see what you can edit together. Yeah, well, and they, they probably did. Or, right. again, uh, you know, the crutch of computer graphics where you can you can yeah. lean on that crutch really hard. Yeah. And so you can say, this didn't work, Let's we'll just fix it in later in the post. Yeah. Yep, later, fix it later, fix it later. Yeah. And yeah, you end up with this movie that stops making sense one third of the way through, yeah. which Whereas, is like, what Rogue One is. In this film, there, there probably is... There's probably some computerized imagery that we're just not seeing, but right. 
it's it's if not it, if it's there, it's so minimal that yeah. Well, and it's yeah. not holding them film together, right? No, like it's yeah, not it's, it's not, not used to stitch the together glue. these yeah, yeah disparate parts. Yeah, yeah. It, so yeah, it, it, it's a shame that that more filmmakers aren't making movies the way um, Wes Anderson does, where it's yeah. His I, I think that he is, but his films also don't make. You know, a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, so, I wonder how much they cost. They cater to a smaller audience, I'm sure. Much smaller. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's a niche director. Yeah. And people yeah like but it's films, nice but... that he doesn't compromise the artistic vision um, to try to attract a large. Yeah, but that but... he's lucky that in yeah. that he, this <laughs> this film and Rushmore and Battle uh, Rocket, his early films were successful and allowed him to the allowed him the financial success to not have yeah. to compromise his vision. You don't go out and say like I'm going to compromise my vision, <laughs> right? Like, well, yeah. You say there, there are financial incentives to do that, and they're very strong. Like yeah. you could make one film and be be set for life. So mm -hmm. like, and we're seeing this a lot right now, where like little directors are being plucked out of nowhere to make very big films, uh, like Ryan Johnson yep. with the new Star Wars movie, or Gareth Edwards with uh, the most recent the he did Godzilla one. movie. Mm -hmm. Yep, and Rogue One. So he, he also directed Godzilla. Before that, he directed okay. this little sci-fi movie called Monsters, which I, I love. I think yeah. it's actually one of my favorite films. I've and seen that one. He wrote, directed, and did all the special effects for it himself on oh. a single laptop. Wow. And if, if someone says, we really like that, here's the largest pile of money you've ever seen in your life. Do you want to sell out? You should definitely say yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. You are an idiot if you don't say yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's in all things, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're I think you can... the same thing with Snapchat right now, which is yeah. like definitely going to fail as a company. And the reason <laughs> is they said "f you" to the giant pile of money from Google and a "f you" yeah. to Facebook when they didn't really have a very good idea originally. Yeah. It's not going to last, and we're going to see this implosion happen over the next five to ten years, like yeah. with what's happening with Twitter. So, yeah, well, but um, Wes Anderson luckily did have a really good idea, right? It helps that he's legitimately a cinematic yeah. genius. It, it helps that. Yeah. He's a good filmmaker and yeah. a good writer yeah. and is a master of, of his craft. Right. right. But right. he also had these moments of early success that allowed him to get to this point. So, you know, for every, you know, director who makes a bad movie, they were at one time also like an art student and mm -hmm. probably made something good and that allowed them to do something else good and something else good. And so, um, you know, the temptation to sell out is, is everywhere. And yeah. If it happens, like you should sell out, definitely. Like, <laughs> like, is that what the message you're getting out of the royal? Yeah, realms? definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you are so lucky as to be able to control what you do in life, yeah, uh, no, I hear you. And have the financial independence, then you should definitely do that. Yeah, most of most filmmakers are not that lucky, and that's why yeah. we have the current state of, of filmmaking. Yeah, well, and and that doesn't mean you can you're not going to make a good movie, right? Like you you look at the, maybe the initiating example of this was the first two Spider-Man movies. Which were right. great. Right, which were great. Yeah. Right. It was a it was a director that was plucked out of, you know, genre of filmmaking, low budget, indie stuff. Yeah. And said, yep. here's a pile of money. And he said, actually I'm gonna do something yeah, I'm gonna maintain my own style and my own way of making movies. Or Guardians of the Galaxy is a great example. Guardian, right? This yeah. is a Disney film, right? Yeah. Yeah. Disney doesn't <laughs> make good live action films, right? right. Right. And here we are with an, an amazing comic book movie, which right. should be stupid. Like it could very well be stupid. It looks stupid. And they right. would still, pro they would probably make just as much money. Yeah. yeah. And it, and there's no doubt in my mind yeah. that people have come up to Wes Anderson 
throughout his career? How many times? Dozens of times? Probably, he was probably career? offered one of the Star Wars movies. Right. <laughs> probably yeah. Know, yeah. Right. Yeah. I'd like to see a Wes Anderson Star Wars. I want to see that too. It I would maybe be the best Star Wars movie. <laughs> <laughs> or terrible because they would all have like typewriters or something. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> hey, they already have retro tech in Star Wars. That's good. true. Which was good, right? Yeah. like the prequels, like, well, their tech doesn't Scott, make sense Scott with what happens later. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is definitely true. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm sure that people came along to Wes Anderson and said, Here's all this money. Make I'm sure the movie that you know make the Marvel and movie. And he, he does do yeah. that, but in small ways. So like yeah. he'll shoot commercials. Yes, yes, and for like fashion brands. Yeah, and I know he's done the H and M one. Did he do he, one? Yeah, yeah, did he, he do did. A, a car commercial at one point? Um, Maybe I missed. Well, there was a Jason oh, Schwarzman one, which was like some uh, some luxury brand that he shot while making Grand Budapest to fund Grand Budapest. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, he did that with Darjeeling Limited too, right? Wasn't there something on a train? Yeah, I, yeah. I think he he does like commercial work to like fund his actual films, and like this is where he's selling out, right? Right. Where he like he needs the money to like realize his vision, so he he won't compromise the movie, but he'll do things around it to which is fund kind of better, Isn't right? Because he, he end up with himself better when he's making these commercials. Is yeah, it? and the commercials are absurd. Like yeah. but, uh, they hire him because they want his style in their commercials, and I people think, go, "Well, it's a Wes Anderson commercial." I think the one with Jason Schwartzman is like a Louis Vuitton, probably, bag. and it has nothing to do with Louis Vuitton. <laughs> they're, they're wearing like Louis Vuitton clothing or something, but it's it. like Louis Vuitton doesn't need it. Yeah, no, it's some people inane storyline where Jason Schwartzman's like a race car driver in like the forties or something. I want to see that movie in a village. And oh wait, no, I have uh, I have seen that ad. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean yeah, yeah. It's like this ten minute like. I, who knows what it's for? It's probably Louis Vuitton. Like, it could be anything. It could be Jaguar. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> He's right. doing it for money. These luxury brands are able to associate themselves with an art, art like an artiste, capital uh, uh, yes, A, an auteur. Yeah, yeah auteur yeah. like Wes Anderson because that's what they want for their brands. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that kind of brings us to a concept that we haven't directly talked about on the show, which is auteur theory, right? Because he is yeah. one of the modern examples, I think, of an artist that is embracing that. Um, and it, of course, again, goes back to the French New Wave. Yeah. But you see um, you see Tarantino do the same thing. You see uh, Paul Thomas Anderson do the same thing, where these guys that are that, that have this vision and are, that is solely theirs. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, that he's a good example of that. Um, we I'm we see John Carpenter, same thing, right? Yeah. Uh, although it's, it's interesting to think of John Carpenter as an auteur, <laughs> but you're right. Like, I think yeah. he, would, he would fit the definition. Um, so it's, it's cool to... To see someone's carrying that torch, so yes. like well past the fifties and sixties. Um, I'm getting the signal that we're running low on time. So, Charles, is this a uh, a recommend? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know how many of my friends would like this kind of movie. It feels like the kind of movie that would be, or the kind of style that would be polarizing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's the impression I get from it, Wes Anderson when yeah. I see discussion online. But he also seems very well liked in general, um, and I think that. Because of the conventional plot, well-written characters and like you know, good emotional storyline, I think it's a pretty easy recommend. An easy recommend, okay, solid. There you go. You finally, I, I got one. Got it. <laughs> Charles likes. Yeah, yeah. and can <laughs> recommend other people because a lot of times it's I liked it, but nobody yeah. should watch it. <laughs> so um, I, I get the choice next week, and bring it um, on. You know, we started this podcast because we kept having discussions with Charles where he hadn't seen a movie that he definitely should have for whatever reason and hasn't seen it. That's the whole idea. Um, And we would be in these conversations and, like, he would say, like, I haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then, like, a little explosion would happen (laughs) in my brain and be like, what the? Yeah. Why? Why? (laughs) Why haven't you seen this movie? 
Um, and just this week, we learned that Charles has not seen The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. 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 I that, think that's usually the biggest, that's the one I get the biggest reactions for when people ask about it. Well, yeah. We are going to watch The Wizard of Oz because you. This right. is, you have an incomplete catalog of film without You have an incomplete seeing. life without seeing yeah. Wizard of yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I look forward to completing myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was getting one step closer anyway. Yeah. So, okay. So we're going to watch the 1939 The Wizard of Oz. Not starring the James Judy Franco one. Not the James Franco <laughs> one. Yeah. <laughs> Although, Which I have seen for some reason. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You <laughs> this again. It was in theaters. Yeah. All right. Wizard of Oz. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you for joining us, everyone. See you next week.